This podcast is offered by Wildflowers and Sangha. A Dharma Talk by Roshi Amy to SLA Hollowell. Good afternoon. <coughs> Today I would like to talk about tomorrow. Uh, so that we can fully experience today, today, and tomorrow, tomorrow, which tomorrow will be today. Uh, Because at this point in the retreat, we're already projecting ahead, and in, in the work meeting, we already talked about what we would do, and who would do what, and how it would go, and of course it won't happen at all like that, but uh, it helps to give us a, an idea um, so that we can relax and not have to think about too much about that right now. Uh, and I often at this point quote the teacher of my teacher, who I once heard say in a very big retreat, you know, there are like 300 people there, and someone had asked him at this time, at the end of the retreat, um, so, you know, it's been wonderful here, uh, everything goes smoothly, it's so easy, it's so simple, um, everyone is, we're all doing the same thing, and we're calm with each other, and... I don't have to worry about anything. I don't have to think about cooking or cleaning, except for the job I have of cleaning the toilets, but nothing else. But tomorrow, I have to go home, and there's my family, my wife, my kids. The next day, I have to go to work. I have to pay the insurance. I have to get the car fixed. Um, I have to go back to my job and deal with my colleagues. and. Um, my son is having difficulty at school and all of this stuff. And so my teacher's teacher, who has this way about him of being very direct and um, kind of, you can misinterpret his, what he's saying as being unkind, but he said, he turned to the guy and he said, if you don't want to enter the zendo, meaning here, Now, if you don't want to leave the zendo, don't enter it. And he didn't mean, don't come to the retreat. He didn't mean, if you don't want to leave the retreat, don't enter it. Because it's difficult to leave, and its separations are hard, and he didn't, that's not what he meant. So what did he mean? He meant that with the separations that we create between zendo, not zendo, retreat, not retreat, practice, daily life, we then create this huge difference and we suffer because of it. Every time we're in a situation where we're focusing on the differences in the duality, 
without taking into consideration the oneness, we will have trouble. That's where suffering arises. So, so his point was, make your life your practice. So the zendo is everywhere. It's not just here. And I think on our website, at least in English, it says something to that effect. It said we don't, we don't have robes, we don't have priests, there's no walls. The world is our zendo. The earth is our altar. And if we can, if we can really experience that, then we have no problems. Of course, we have problems, but they're not a problem because it's just part of the whole. Um, so this sounds like a big program, right? And it is to a certain effect. Um, last week at the retreat, uh, there was a Dutch person who said, there were a lot of Dutch people, but one of the Dutch people said, and I can't even remember who it was, I think maybe it was Helen or someone, I don't know, said, um, quoted Johan Cruyff, you know, the football star, Johan Cruyff, who said, <laughs> it was br it's brilliant actually, it's brilliant. Uh, I mean, he was a brilliant football player, but um, he said, <coughs> playing football is simple. Playing simple football is difficult. And that's so true, isn't it? Football, anything, right? And, you know, I think Johan Cruyff probably, there weren't a lot of people who could play simple football like he could. Um, and there still aren't. Uh, and that is what our practice is, meaning here things have been simplified, right? I, you think that it's really complicated when you start, right? So it seems really complicated and what, you know, what are all these rituals? And like a lot of you, the first time I went to a retreat, I thought, whoa, what? And I, it was like this retreat when everyone was in black robes and they were facing the wall and all these ceremonies and stuff, and I thought, huh, what? Um, and was a little scared, actually, like some of you, you know, when you come to retreat, and resisted some of it, and then finally, because the, the practice of sitting meditation was so much, that's why I came, because I didn't know anyone who sat meditation, and I wanted to find other people who were doing it. I wanted to find a teacher who could instruct me. And, um, so I went and I loved the fact that somebody claps some pieces of wood and everybody goes and sits together. Wow, that was so powerful. And so that was so powerful that the rest of it I didn't care about. I didn't care if these people were in robes. I didn't care if we were facing the wall. Um, it was okay, it didn't matter, because this was so powerful. And the experience I had of when sitting was so powerful. 
But actually, so all of this, you know, orioki and all of this, it's to simplify. It's to make it simpler. Um, and to help us as we sit, all of us, our mind is different than it was when we arrived. Even, you know, if you just arrived yesterday, uh, your mind is different than it was when you arrived. And things begin to be a little more clear, even though the chattering and all of that business is still going on. It's a little more clear. You have moments when there's some clarity. And the way that you experience, you know, the Orioki now is smooth. You know, it's like a lake that's really tranquil. And we didn't, if we try to see when that change occurred, we can't because it's ongoing. It's endless, it's constant, right? Uh, it's like if we try to see where the day becomes night or the night becomes day, or where the, the ocean becomes the beach and the beach becomes the ocean. There, it's, no, it's not fixed. So this is this ongoing thing that happens here. And the same thing is true in our daily lives. In a monastery, which none of us are in a monastery and none of us probably will ever live in a monastery, but in a monastery, whether it's Catholic, uh, whatever it is, um, Buddhist, Zen, whatever, everything is simplified by the same sets of codes and rules and organization and the monks don't even have to think about their clothing. We all had to think every day, well, what are we going to wear, more or less? Um, but a monk, they just put on their robe and that's it. They don't think about it. So every, they shave their heads, they don't have to think about what their hair looks like, if it's too clean or dirty, or um, if they wear it up or not, or whatever. Um, it's just, you don't even think about it. Everything is really simple. So our challenge, those of us who live just secular lay lives, is how do we find that simplicity in our lives? And the, the Tibetan teacher Shogyam Trungpa said that. He said, it's really easy for those people in Tibet, in India, in Nepal, in China, in Japan, and Burma, in Myanmar, and Thailand, they live in monasteries, it's super easy, super, super easy. For us in the West, it's really hard. We have to simplify in a different way, although it's the same. The same process of simplifying, about clarifying what is the right amount, which is what orioki means, the right amount. So what is the right amount? What, how many shoes do we really need? Um, what is the right job for us? How do we, in, in French we say, gagner sa vie sans ne perdre. So how do you earn your living without losing it? Earn your life without losing your life? Um, what is the way of least suffering? for ourselves and for others. So how do we cause the least suffering? And these are 
things we can't know, there's no fixed response. It's in the doing, in the being, that we find those, the way. So we have, like, Joanna will be taking the precepts, which help us to remind us of some, gives us some parameters of how we want to do it, how we hope to live, what we aspire to. Um, but at the same time, it's each, of, each of us has to find it for ourselves. And in this, any spiritual journey, in fact, the beauty of the spiritual journey, which is what this is, takes us into ourselves, of course, but then into the heart of the world and life. It's not about withdrawing. Even a monk in a monastery is withdrawing in order to better be in the world, to better serve, because that's what they do. They serve the communities around them, right? And they've willingly chosen to give up uh, what the rest of us are doing, you know, the worldly world, because for them, that's the way to better realize it. For us, we have to find what's the best way for ourselves. And coming and sitting like this, an intense retreat, intense meditation retreat, is, a, is an excellent way to then, when you go out there tomorrow, experience the same thing you were experiencing before you came, same traffic, the same, you go home to your house, your apartment, the people you live with or you don't, the animals you keep, uh, whatever it is, but you will experience it differently, or you can experience it differently, let's say, because what you've experienced here. Um, and so how does that... So I said there's the precepts, but there's also, you know, the, the basic point of this practice is awakening, awakening to the oneness. And when you, what we mean by that is um, seeing the whole, the wholeness of life and the wholeness, the non-separation of I and other. Because it's this big investment that we have in I, each of us, in our individual I, me, that is the root cause of all of our troubles. So it's this, it's not, let's say, a super investment. It's an overinvestment in I. Uh, you know, it's like if you're putting all of your, like we say in, in English, putting all of your eggs in one basket. And you're, so you're putting all of your attention, all of your efforts concentrated on me. Without seeing other, and without seeing the equality of I and other. The oneness, right? Um, and yesterday, our practice of the talking and listening circle, 
is that's a really important practice uh, as a display of oneness and diversity. So in the circle, all of the voices are equal. There's no hierarchy, as I said. Every voice is equal. Every voice is pure, not as opposed to being impure, but whole. And then each person speaks, and it's completely different than what the person before said. The voice is different. The choice of words is different. The emotions are different. Um, What we experience is different. We don't experience one person the same way as we experience another. And yet, there's that equality that's happening. There's the oneness of it. And we receive each one in the same way, theoretically, right? Because it's not an easy thing to let go of our judgments. And our, you know, we might really like what someone says, and we might be uncomfortable with what someone else says, and we might like what one person says and dislike what another says. But we try to let go of those judgments and receive it all as one and appreciate the diversity. And often that's what touches us so much in those circles is not necessarily the particular emotions that were expressed, but the vast diversity of it, the richness of it. Every person was expressing just this, whatever it was at this moment, just this, in a completely different way. Everyone in their own way. Um, And when we don't appreciate that, when we don't see that, that's when we are, we suffer because we don't, we get stuck on not liking or judging or liking and wanting to hold on to whatever arises, you know, the voice, who's, the person who's talking, um, the, what's being expressed, uh, judging ourselves, because that's a big one too, you know, in those circles. I, like I often say, I hated those circles in the beginning when my teacher started doing it. And I would just tremble. I would, when it got to my turn to speak, I could hardly speak. I was trembling. I was so terrified of speaking. And I was really judging myself so severely, thinking they won't like what I say, or I wanted something brilliant to say, or I didn't want to show what I had to say, or I was afraid of expressing an emotion, whatever it was, you know. I was judging it and really torturing myself with it. And of course, I was judging what other people were saying too. The two go together. Um, And so in a very concrete way, that's an example of how we cause suffering for ourselves. And we create suffering for others when we do the same thing to others. And when we don't see the oneness, we then, that's where greed and anger and ignorance arrives. I mean, the basic ignorance is not seeing the oneness. That's what we call our delusion, our basic delusion. Um, 
it's not about that there aren't differences. It's about that there is oneness, because we're very familiar with the differences. That's basically how we function most of the time. But this oneness aspect is what escapes us most of the time, because we're looking at something else. And then there's greed, anger, ignorance, injustice, inequality, um, abuse, war, violence, ecological disasters, um, corruption, everything arises from those basic things, from this basic delusion of separation between self and other. Right? Um, so what does that have to do with going into the world tomorrow? Well, everything, actually. Because that separation we make between my practice and my life is also comes from the same root. Um, and our liberation is this waking up, we say, to the oneness. Because then we don't have to constantly be picking and choosing between what is what we want and what we don't want, um, about thinking who we want to be and who we are not, how we want other people to be and how we don't want them to be, how we want our life to look. I always give my own life as an example of having two children, living in the community with my teacher, having a job, a partner, and until I realized that all of that was my practice, as much as sitting with the group was my practice, I was just in terrible pain and suffering and feeling excluded and being jealous of other people and probably not being nice to people, um, putting really severe demands on the babysitter, uh, um, maybe not doing my work very well because I didn't want to be there. And but when I came to the point where I could realize that changing my son's diaper was as much practice as sitting on the cushion, when going to work and writing articles for the newspaper that I didn't really believe in, um, or sitting, sitting meditation next to my daughter's bed while she went to sleep was as valuable as sitting in the zendo with my comrades, then I was free. Because everything I was doing was practice. And my practice, my life was my practice. And my practice was my life. There was no longer separation. And I often say, I, I said, actually, in the public comments I had to say after I became officially a teacher, I could not have done, I would not be sitting here today if I had not had my children, my job, my partner. I would never have been able to do it. Not like this. And usually we think it's the opposite. We have to get rid of our job, not have children, um, not have a partner or have a partner who um, is doing exactly the same thing we're doing. No, you don't need to change anything. 
And yet you have to change everything. <laughs> the one thing you have to change is how you, how you experience the world. And it's not even that you have to change it, it's that it can be changed by awakening to the oneness of it, of everything. The, the other quote that I love to say, that I love so much, is from Confucius, who says, we have two lives. The second one begins when we realize we only have one. And it's the same thing for this practice. So our life is not any different. It doesn't have to look any different. I think my colleagues at the newspaper where I worked generally, well, maybe not. But I think outwardly I didn't look any different. Everything was still the same. I was still coming to work and whatever. But I think the way that I behaved with them and as a colleague and performing my work was different. And I think they could appreciate that. Most of them had no idea what was different and why or what my life outside was. Or some of them did, and I think maybe generally everybody did. They thought, you know, Amy does this weird thing, Zen or you know, something. Maybe. I don't know. Some would ask about it. And I would tell them. If people asked, I would tell them. And, you know, I would have ongoing conversations and whatever. But um, you're not going to become somebody else. It's the good news and the bad news, right? Because you're already perfect as you are. And your life is perfect. It doesn't mean there are things that can, things can be simplified. You can make changes according to how you experience the suffering that it engenders or doesn't, the problems that it causes and doesn't. Um, you know, you might say, I'm working too much. Um, you might say, oh, you know, I really don't want to be doing this job. I would like to do something else. Um, I don't know. Nobody knows except you. But you can see it more clearly and be more free if you sit down and look into the nature of this I, which is what we've been doing here this week. Um, so, so what we call practice, it's not something that we have to fit into our life, you know, make a place for in our life. It's actually how we live our life. And the sitting practice helps us to maintain that clarity, and with that clarity then comes the ability to simplify and make decisions that fit with the way that we would like to live, how we aspire to living. And so it's not that we have to fit practice in, but it's how we live, how we do what we do. That's the practice, actually. That's one of the beauties also of Zen, is because it's not just about some sitting on a cushion all the time. It's about getting up and going into life. So we get up off our cushions and we walk for 10 minutes. And then when we finish sitting, we work, um, we eat, 
uh, we rest, we, we talk, in, we have interviews. All of it is practice. We try, to, we try to integrate all the aspects of our life into the practice, this formal practice of sitting, let's say. Uh, and sometimes it's necessary to withdraw, like we did this week, so that we can better enter, which if we stick with what my teacher's teacher says, we're not actually coming and going. And at the same time, there's a difference. There's a difference between sitting here all week and sitting at the beach all week. There's a big difference. And, you know, I'm really looking forward to the next few weeks when I'm going to not be sitting in Zendo. Um, and just relaxing. I'm not sure I'll go to the beach, but I will not be at home and I will not be doing this. Um, But while I'm here, I'm really here. And that's what I used to say to my colleagues, too, at work when they would ask me. You know, a colleague would tell me, you know, you're wasting your talent as a writer on this stupid newspaper, you know. Sometimes when I had to, like I've said, I've had to write the people column. You know, write about Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolina and the, you know, the Kardashians or whatever. Um, and my colleague would say, this is such a waste. It's such a waste. And I said, yeah, you could see it that way. Uh, but, or and, you can also see it as when I'm here doing this, I do it fully, completely. I apply my skills and my talent and my creativity as a writer completely to this. And when I go out that door, I do something different. And I apply myself completely, fully, with my full creativity to whatever it is I'm doing. My poetry, my Zen work, my, my family, uh, my friends, whatever else it is. And then nothing is wasted. My talent is not wasted. Uh, he's the one who's saying talent. I'm not saying my talent, but um, I'm not. I'm not. It's not wasted. Um, I know fully well that I need to. At that moment, I need to apply myself fully, because I need to do that so that I can do all the rest. I've always said that that newspaper funded, they gave me all the money I needed to do this practice, to raise my children, to pay my rent, to pay for my children's university. Um, that newspaper funded all of this. In exchange, I agreed to go write some things for them. And because I was honoring my commitment, I gave myself it to it entirely. It reduced my suffering a lot because it wasn't always, I didn't always like the work. But because I experienced it that way, it was completely different than before when I did the job and I did it differently. Um, we can be better parents, we can be better colleagues, we can be better friends, we can be better partners. 
um, we can be better citizens um, when we awaken to the oneness of life. Um, and it's not that we are not good citizens, partners, wives, parents. That's not it. It's not that, it's not that we're bad. Um, but I think all of, we wouldn't be here if we didn't have some discomfort with what our lives are like. Um, we want something different. We want something easier. We want it can be something apparently tiny, or it can be huge. Um, So if we can today see that <laughs> um, and keep in mind that it's every moment, so it's moment to moment, life is every moment. Um, and can we just, in each moment, um, live fully? That's what the point is, right? To live fully, freely. each moment. And, and the, the simplification comes when we just do what we have to do right now. Just what is here right now, just do it. That's it. And then, like I said with my work, you know, and then when I was not in the office anymore, that's the beauty of a newspaper like that is, you know, there's a deadline and the newspaper is off to print and you don't have to think about it anymore until the next day. Right? Um, although that's rapidly changing in our world today because now the news is 24-7 and at the end of my career as a journalist, it was already that and it was hard to adjust you know, to the... Someone has to be updating the website all the time and Twitter accounts and all this stuff. Um, so you see what we do with our, <laughs> with our mind. We, in some respects, all of our new technologies simplify our lives enormously. They also add complexity and complication to our lives. So how can we be with them in a simple way? Someone in New York told me, um, actually, I think it might be someone from the village Zendo. I can't remember his name, actually. Um, I'm sure it is, but I can't remember. He said that he and some, some friends and maybe fellow practitioners in New York had formed a 12-step uh, group for tech, tech uh, dependence, technology dependence, acknowledging that they were addicted and they were dependent. And so how best to live with that dependency? Um, interesting, right? Because it is. It's just another thing <laughs> that we are dependent upon and that we become attached to. 
And so can we there, too, see um, see how, um, how to cause the least suffering with the technologies that we use for ourselves and for others? Uh, for a long time, I just tried to stay off the grid uh, until my son was in, I think he was about 13 or 14, and I had to kind of keep track of him, you know? <laughs> and I had to be available for him, you know? If he was out in the city in Paris, it's a big city, you know, doing stuff, and he was going to school on his own, on the metro and whatever, and um, so I decided I had to be available in that way. Uh, so I had to get a cell phone. And I have to navigate it. So what's appropriate and what's not appropriate? And how much do I need it and how much don't I need it? And when do I need it and when don't I need it? And how can I be one with this technology um, and with others without creating further separation? And um, what can I do to... Um, how best to use the technologies to serve others and the elimination of suffering, maybe. You know, so like our Zen group, we have websites, we have a Facebook page. Um, of course, Facebook page, nobody really does anything with it. <laughs> um, because none of us are really into Facebook or anything, but um, we felt we needed a presence because that's where we are. This is our world today, you know. Joanna's creating a YouTube channel so that people can find us, so that it can bring, you know, you, all of you here, I'm sure, have seen teachers on the web and been inspired and found, or, you know, apps for meditation. I mean, it can be really, really helpful and useful. Um, but can we keep track of when it's too much and when it's too little? Uh, how can we keep it simple? Again, we come back to this simplifying, simplifying. And, you know, um, it's tricky simplification too. And, uh, or, you know, the, yesterday talking with someone, I remembered this quote from John Cage, the composer, the American composer John Cage. Um, who gave a who gave a lecture on nothing? Who gave a talk on nothing? And he's you know he's also famous for his nine minutes of silence, right? You know. um, and he said, "I have nothing to say, and I'm saying it to you right now. So we we have to say something." That's, that's how, that's what happens in our world. That's how we communicate. That's, but actually there is nothing to say. And I realize that we have sat here every day saying things, and yet there is really nothing to say. But I'm saying it to you right now. And, you know, um, so John Cage does his silence. Um, someone like Giacometti, who who was, had the same quest, 
how to manifest in form the, the absolute, what can't be seen grasped. So how to grasp in a sculpture or in a drawing or a painting what can't be grasped. Because ultimately that, that's, the essence can't be grasped, right? But he wanted to represent that. And so he would sit there in his studio and he would have his model and he would be doing his sculpture and you know, hours and hours and hours on end. And then the next day he would come back and he would destroy it because everything had changed. The model was still there, the model was still in the same place, his wife usually or his brother usually, um, but it wasn't the same anymore. And so he would start over again. And he did this every day, every day, every day. And he did his drawings too, you know, and like, you see some of Giacometti's drawings and they're like, you can't even see the face in there, or barely. What we think of as a face. Because he was trying to capture impermanence in form and he couldn't do it. Eventually he did and he gave us these absolutely fabulous pieces of art although he didn't really think that they were finished. At some point he had his brother, would, his brother was his, took care of his practical side and would say, okay, you know, we have to take this and this has to be cast now, you know, this one. And he would give it up to his brother. Um, but every day, and I'm so touched by that, every day he would start over, every day. And then you have other cases like the artist Nicolas de Stael, who had the same quest and was seeking the absolute, was seeking the absolute minimum line, the absolute per perfect, how to make it less and less, because he was also seeking the impermanent, also seeking the absolute. And he also made fabulous paintings, absolutely just stunning paintings. But he ended by jumping out the window of his studio off the ramparts of Antibes in the south of France. Um, the impossibility of it escaped him, you know, and he, he could not come to terms with it. I tend to believe that sitting down and looking into it and seeing that the oneness is manifest in all phenomenon helps us with that kind of desperation maybe, you know, because impermanence is frightening, you know. Um, like Trung said, I said this last week too in a talk, um, enlightenment or waking up to the way things truly are, seeing things as they truly are, is like falling out of an airplane. The bad news is that there's no parachute, right? But the good news is, is that there's no ground. So you're not going to fall on the ground. The natural state of being is this groundlessness. So can we appreciate that when we're walking on the ground? Can we really appreciate that there is no solid ground? And therefore, we can be rooted in this not solid ground. It's like we say dwelling and non-dwelling. So being 
being fully rooted here now in what's here because it won't be there tomorrow. I saw this when we were last week in France, we had to drive from the place we were staying to the place where the retreat was happening, which was rather unfortunate. But so once we, we drove past a cemetery and I saw on the door on the gate of the cemetery in French, it said, um, please, uh, please uh, don't let the plants take root. Um, ne laissez pas les plantes s'enraciner. I thought, wow, that's really weird. <laughs> Why would you not let plants take root? You know? Why would you not? I'm assuming that people come, you know, once a year and they leave a plant on the grave and then they don't come back again for a year or several years and the plants then grow and they don't want the cemetery to be overrun by plants, probably. I don't know. That's the only thing I can imagine. Because it's, it was such a weird thing. Um, so what we're trying to do is take root. But take root in impermanence, you know, to become. And oneness is about impermanence, too, right? Because um, if we're all one, then that means we're not this separate, solid thing that we think we are, that has these really fixed characteristics and uh, is completely different from you, and I don't share anything with you. Um, and yet, when we really look into that, we see that we're constantly changing, too. You know, like, like Giacometti saw, with, he was trying to make these sculptures and it was different. His wife looked completely different. It was a completely different moment. The light was completely different. Uh, and no matter how hard, I don't know if he did, but no matter how hard you tried, um, you couldn't create exactly the same position, the same lighting, the same hair in the exact same place. You couldn't do it. And he wasn't interested in that. He was interested in the impermanence. Um, So, can we take interest in that impermanence and appreciate it and realize that, okay, tomorrow it will be something different. It won't be the same. Um, even, you know, every Oriyoki is different. Every, already since we've been sitting here and I've been talking on and on and on and on and on and on, uh, it's different. People have come and gone, the light has changed, the air has changed. Um, people have changed position. Um, I took off my mala and I'm sitting here playing with it. Uh, I hope we don't hear that on the <laughs> tape. Um, everything's different. Everything's changing all the time, all the time. So, um, Simple football. Simple to play, but hard to play simple football. Um, 
Again, because everything's changing all the time. You know, there's another footballer who said, I happen to like football, and so I often quote footballers. But um, the, the, the English footballer, Gary Lineker, said famously, as he was playing in the, um, the late 80s and the 90s, I think, and um, he said, again, football is a simple game. It's 11 people playing against 11 people chasing the ball around for 90 minutes, and in the end, the Germans win. <laughs> and <laughs> what? In the last minute. Right. The Portuguese, too. <laughs> Portuguese, too. We have a different concept. Uh, play, play beautiful. Exactly. Uh, it's, uh, it was our national team during several decades. Uh, does, they didn't score goals, but played beautiful. <laughs> That's right. That's right. It's, it's an interesting question that I want to ask. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and it's true. And the French were like that for a long time, too. Um, fabulous, you know, in the 80s with Platini and the, what they called the magic diamond in the middle and the fabulous, beautiful champagne football, they called it. But they always got beat by the Germans, <laughs> <laughs> who didn't play like that. They were very pragmatic. So the French learned. So now they're pragmatic. <laughs> kind of, in a French way. But. Um, it didn't work against the Portuguese. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately. A different moment. That's what I mean. The Portuguese scored in the last minute. And, uh, so. Um, so, yeah, we could go on and on about football, but we won't. But football, it's the same, you know. It's, there's the Zen of football. Or tennis, another one. The Zen of tennis. Um, so what time do we have here? One Okay. So because, you know, this is our last uh, talk occasion, um, questions are welcome, and they're much more interesting than the answers. So uh, I'm, I'm thinking about public transport. Transportation is while you were talking. Mm-hmm. Well, it's 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 a really interesting place to practice, you know, to practice in the sense of be attentive, even you know, meditation, um, just sit. Um, it can be really interesting, or pay attention to the other people. Look around you. I had one of my first experiences of seeing the generalized suffering of all of us was actually in a crowded commuter train <clears throat> looking around and seeing how everyone looked so uncomfortable and not because it was crowded but I saw the basic 
discomfort we have with being, you know. So if you look around and you pay attention, you notice things. Sometimes it's not possible. Sometimes you're really tired or really annoyed with the person who's, you know, rubbing up against you on the seat or you don't get a seat. You know, that's always an interesting thing too. Is so it's crowded and you're, you finally got a seat and then other people come on and you don't want to give up that seat no matter what. And so you wait for somebody else to get up for the old lady or, or, or whatever, no? I mean, Oh, really? Old lady or pregnant woman. Yes, I did that, and it was a sign of you are considering someone else weaker than you. Mm. <laughs> so oh, I was really? quite happy and shocked at the same time. I kept my seat. Interesting. I didn't know that. Huh? That's interesting. Huh? I have a question. Because I was sitting and I was also making the programs for what's happening next. So I'm moving to the UK and I was thinking about, oh, I need to buy a car and I need to buy all this equipment. And then I was thinking, why? Why are you making all, the, all this? All, why are you stuffing your head right ab about? You are just moving, okay? You move and then you see. Why are you just planning and planning and planning? And I was making, what? Oh, I'll spend this much on the car and this much on the equipment because I'm also like, I work in films. So I, I wanted to buy some lights so I can do my job. And I, I was thinking, is, is it anxiety like a bit like greediness, you know, like greed? Because I was also, I was anxious, like, and, and that's anxiety, mm -hmm. right? But uh, th th that came, the, the thought came that maybe anxiety is just greed, that I want to, I, I, I just felt very, very greedy about it, like about wanting to have like be a BOP or to have this job or have this, you know, all this. Well, I mean, anxiety can be related like this. In this case, yeah, absolutely. You're anxious about not having, about lacking, about um, missing something, whatever, uh, or wanting more, or wanting this or that. So, yeah, in that case, yeah, anxiety can also be uh, feeling separate, feeling alone. Um, but, yeah, good example. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah of course, yeah. of course. But so there's a moment for planning, and then there's a moment for letting go, and there's a moment for um, the plans will never be realized like we think they will. Um, but it's necessary, absolutely. It, it helps simplify. Mm -hmm. you know, so if you make a list of what you need, then, then you can say, oh, well, I can buy that there, or I don't need, really need that, or whatever. It simplifies. Yeah. You can also pay attention, I think, to the right amount when planning. <laughs>
so it, what, what they both did, it was really interesting, it, it connected what, what they said. So they developed a map. Uh, and um, they asked people to authorize, they contact them to for a study. So what kind of study was that? First, in several, several times per week, they receive a phone a reminder. So they had to check the app, and the first question was, how how happy you are feeling right now? So they have one from zero, very, very bad, to 100, I feel great. So the first part of the question. Yeah, the, the, yeah. the second part was, what are you doing right now? And people have to choose among several. Uh, I mean, I was cooking, I was you know, reading in my newspaper, whatever. And one of the options was uh, commuting, uh, going, travel from house to work, work to house, all that stuff. And the third thing was, were you concentrated in what you were doing? Or you were thinking a little bit about the past, or a lot about the past, or you were anticipating the future, or you were so, and, and the conclusions was very, very simple. First, almost 50% of the people were not concentrated in what they were doing. 47.8. Second thing is that when people were concentrated, even in those dimensions that almost everybody don't, doesn't like, like commuting, they were feeling more happy. Uh, so being concentrated, whatever we are doing, having a meal, talking to a friend, listening to a child, whatever, it's linked with our happiness. Mm -hmm. And the article ends like this. A human mind is a wandering mind. And a wandering mind is No, I didn't know that. I, 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 have, I don't really know scientific stuff like that. So. I can send you the, the sure. so one yeah. chart. Sure. Very interesting. Yeah, Very interesting, interesting yeah. yeah. And I think we can probably all relate, you know, that yeah. Yeah. when we're really present with what we're doing, we're happier, you know? Yeah. 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 However, we define happiness, but yeah. No, but the body likes to be in the presence. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm curious, though, about the commuting one, uh, the, you know, like, say someone was driving to work, they shouldn't be answering that. <laughs> <laughs> if they were driving to work, they shouldn't be... No, no. Uh, that's right. Uh, we all hope that they have to end the... Uh-huh, okay. Yeah. The, Maybe the right, right, traffic jam, exactly. Yeah. Well, then they're really not happy. Yes, I <laughs> yeah. So, something uh, that one can always act on because um, when I did my training about suicide and I 
I work in suicide prevention. Uh, we say it's a moment in the brain, so um, it's not necessarily something we, we can act on it. We can prevent, observe uh, the mm -hmm. signs, for example, <coughs> but uh, it's not someone's responsibility. So. Yeah. No, I, I entirely agree. Mm -hmm. And I gave the example of the styles um, as an artist who, you know, took his <laughs> took his quest to the absolute limit and was, you know, I, I don't know what his mental makeup was, mm -hmm. you know, apart from that. And so when I was saying, you know, if we can, if we have this quest for the absolute, I'm not saying it's going to prevent suicide, but we can look at it in a different way, approach it in a different way. But that's absolutely right. Yeah, I agree. And I have the same question for anxiety also. It's maybe there's something one can act on and some things not. Right. What did you say? You have the same question for? Uh, anxiety. Anxiety or any, because I mean, sometimes for me it's a problem. I, I mean, I like a lot Monja Cohen. And sometimes she's going to talk about depression, and sometimes I, I don't agree because I think um, it's, it can make some people not search help. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Sophia? Yeah. One is just a comment on the anxiety question, but about commitment, I, I have an extra problem, which is like, I don't know how fair it is as a, an attention, a presence of attention that I, I love to commute because I'm always watching people and seeing what they do and how they do it. But then immediately I'm creating stories about them. Like, what were they doing before? What are they doing after? Where did they come from? <laughs> what characters are, you know, like, and then I, I this mental talk starts like, oh, you are being so unfair, and you are just creating types, and now I should just read, and then, oh, but if I read, I'm not paying attention, and this goes on and on, and I never relax when I'm commuting, because, and so paying attention to people, how do you do it in a way that you just focus on them for what they are, and not like this huge storyline about what they might be? Well, you know, I, uh, I, I totally relate. I do the same thing about stories about people. And I love commuting, actually. Yeah. I love public transport. And my husband just hates it, and he thinks I'm crazy, and he hates the Paris Metro, and whatever. I love it. But I do the same thing, like stories. But then what I do is I, I do this, I guess it's my practice, of like taking a step back and then trying to see the person as like completely new. You know, do you remember, the, this was a long, long time ago, they used to have these these books, these like 3D designs that you had to look at and you had to focus your eyes just right to, how do I forget what you called those things, but. And so it's that kind of thing where you pull back and you, and you get a certain distance and so that the stories you were telling, suddenly you realize that they're not, that's not it and you can see the person for what they really are. 
it's like James Joyce would, he had this thing about appreciating a work of art. He said, if you're too far away, you're a critic. You're, you have a critical attitude and you're not really appreciating the work. If you go too close, his word was, it's pornographic, but it's, it's too close and there's no feeling anymore. There's no, you're not really seeing it anymore. You're too close to it. And maybe when we're telling the stories, we're on one side or the other, you know. Um, and so you have to find, his thing was you have to find the right distance. In Buddhism, we call it the middle way, right? Um, it's the, how do we hold these two and see just what is? The stories can help because you, you see in your mind like all the stuff it's creating about this person. And then, but then when you take that step back, you realize, well, that's just stories. And you, there's a moment when you can just really appreciate what is. It's fun. <laughs> I like it. I'm looking forward to go to the Mexican world. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> Sometimes I'm disappointed when I'm traveling with other people and I can't do it. (laughs) (laughs) I have a doubt about something you were saying Mm -hmm. before. Uh, All this time I've been trying to get in contact with myself, the true self. But you were saying that the self separates us from the one. I was convinced that being able to find the self, I would be together with the one, with everything. Well, no, it's a good question because we have that confusion. The, you know, I'm talking about like, you know, see into the reality of this and the true nature of this I, whatever. It's to, because usually most of the time we're walking around with an idea about ourselves and who we think we are and how we think we are and how we want to be and how we don't want to be. And so when we say look into the true nature, it's to go before that, before all that's added on, what's there. And that is where you find what we have in common. And then the rest is just manifestations. Each of us are this perfect manifestation of this one, whatever you want to call it, of it, let's say. So yeah, but that's a good question because it does seem confusing. Using the football metaphor, Johan um, Cruyff who uh, played simple football to score uh, a goal. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have the concept of play beautiful. It was. It means that uh, for the, the, the Portuguese team, the, the goal was not the, the the most important thing in football. It's a bit strange, but most more, more important was. Uh, play beautiful. Uh, transferring this uh, metaphor to life, uh, awakening as a goal, uh, live simple to awaken. Uh, but um, why not uh, don't have the goal of awakening? Play, lives, live uh, beautiful without wanting to Awake. Well, another good question. Well, yeah, it's an excellent question because, in fact, the path is the goal. So, just this is it.
and if you if you awaken to that, then that's that's all you need to see. It's just this. So it is the same thing as the beautiful game, you know. This is the beautiful game. And how do we then live it fully? And that, so when we have this goal of awakening to the oneness, we really all we need to do is just do what we have to do right now. And we will, and that's, of course, you have to make some effort. Um, if the, you know, if the Portuguese players just ran around playing beautiful, then it wouldn't, ultimately, no one would be interested anymore, you know? I mean, the Dutch were known for that too, and they also got beat by the Germans. Um, the Brazilians, beautiful, but they also won playing beautiful football. Uh, they kind of have lost it now. <laughs> Sorry, Isabella, but <laughs> um, maybe it's coming back. That's right. So, so <laughs> we, Isabella and I have this ongoing thing about football. Um, but the path is the goal. And so that's the way. It's just this. This is all that there is. You know. And so, or it was like the, the, the American millionaires in the 1920s said, living well is the best revenge. So how can we live a full, good life? That's what it's about, about being fully human. And awakening, you know, because that is awakening, you know, that's it. That's right. Yeah. Right. There's light in this darkness, but don't look for it. Yeah. And that's a really important point, too, because do we want to get to that last moment, our last breath, and think, I missed it, you know, I missed it, I missed it. If this, you know, if this was your last day, what would you do, you know? Do it, give yourself to it entirely, because it is your last day, you know, I mean, there's not going to be another one like it, not going to be another moment. Sense, yeah, and you're not going anywhere anyway. Yeah, I mean, I'm yeah. not leaving the day, you know, I'm not leaving right. It's always now, yeah, it's true. Like John Lennon said, you know, life is what happens when we're making plans for other things. <laughs> but maybe it's also the same place, you know, now I was thinking about the, the metro as if it was a lens, a photographic lens, when you could just try to pull out a bit, and it's like trying to live in this sense of bewilderment also with our own life. Just, it's so much our own life that we don't see it. Yeah. There's this moment where we can just, it's practicing to these moments without ever making them the goal of what we practice. Like, it's just, I don't know. So yeah, no, absolutely, yeah. And before I moved here, I worked at a 
I was a Buddhist chaplain in a um, correctional facility, a uh, jail, a prison, a maximum security prison called Sing Sing. It's outside of New York City. I have 2,000 inmates, and they all had a Buddhist group, um, and they were a bunch of great guys, um, and they all committed murder. Everybody had murdered somebody or had murdered a couple of somebodies, and they were never getting out. They were, they were going to be there forever, you know, and one, a couple of the guys who were in our Buddhist uh, group died, and they lived almost their whole life in prison. The guy who started the group was incarcerated when he was 20, and I met him when he was 50, and he was amazing. And it was so interesting, I learned so much from those guys, because, you know, you always think, well, that's in prison, I, you know, <laughs> that's awful, you want to just get out, but they're never getting out. And, and you know, we spend all our time out, oh, if I had this, if I had that, if I could get this, or if I was there, if I had a different job, then my life would be better. But they don't have any of those options. Because that day, the Wednesday in prison in 2019 is going to be exactly like Wednesday in prison 2040. And they're going to be doing the same thing with the same people in the same clothes. And I was so impressed with their practice because they had given up hope. And sometimes it's like, I think that's like a good part of our practice where you can kind of give up hope and just see what is in front of you. And those guys, they inspired me that way. You know, things, there was no getting, no planning about moving to the UK. You know, there was no planning to go somewhere else because there was nowhere else. Hmm. And that was always going to be it in their cell. Hmm. And I think, I, I mean, obviously you don't live in a prison because, you know, you can have something different to do except when we're here. And, <laughs> and I sometimes think that when I'm here, like, it reminds me of jail. <laughs> um, and, and I think about, like, what's the good part of jail? But, you know, you, you never have to make any decisions. Um, and it was, it was interesting. But that part about not having any hope and not ever thinking you could get anything different. It was just what was here was in front of you and it was your life. Mm. Um, the guys who were in our group were really were in that place. And it was interesting. Mm. They gave me a lot of life. Well, and it's actually true for all of us. Yes. In different yes. In a different way, you know, in different degrees, but uh, it's, this is it. This is it. You have this one life, and what do you do? <coughs> we, now we eat, exactly. <laughs> I'm so. going to change the way we speak. Just one very small, yeah. uh, short thing. Last week I was talking with a colleague over the phone, and he asked me, uh, How are you? Uh, I asked him, How are you? Uh, not too bad. And he asked me, how are you? I'm great. And he was like, really? <laughs> 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 yes, why not? Why shouldn't I be? So language, I think, has a lot to do with mm. the way we relate to the world and ourselves. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Definitely. Yeah, actually, it shapes the world. Yeah. For example, the sea in Portuguese, it's masculine. But in German, it's feminine. And the... the the way we speak of it, like, for example, in a poem, will be different. Hmm. Yeah. And in English, it's neither masculine or feminine. Okay, all is one.